0: thoughts on your mind at all? Totally thought and sensation free, Ah, except for Judy. (laughs)
1: I'm better, thank you. I
0: wanted to thank you. Found the joy. Oh, you found the joy? Yeah, it was running about. You know how it is. Sometimes it plays a game with you. It always stands right behind you. So you look over your shoulder and oh, yeah. it goes over this side and you look this way. You know. Or it stands on the other side of the tree and as you circle around it. I'm glad you found it. I don't see the of that. Um, <laughs> I have a, a neighbor uh, who I've been walking
1: with for about a year and a half or two. I don't know how much it is. But, and occasionally she asks, me She's a very private person, mm-hmm. but um, she's, she's interested, and I do know her, I don't know what happened to her, because she doesn't actually, she infers things, but she doesn't actually come out and say what happened, and I'm not going to say, you know, try, um, but I think she might have had a stroke or something she had some brain trauma. And I know she takes several medications, because she tells me about the side effects of the medications. But um, she she is, and I do, I do know she has like excruciating physical pain, because she does have some nerve damage in her face, and she does talk about that to where she can't come out and walk. But a lot of times, I just don't think she wants to come out. And she's afraid of losing her house, and she's afraid of all kinds of things. And how would you, because I can only repeat what my teachers Mm -hmm. (laughs) said. And how would you comfort maybe this individual or her, or talk to them about the, um, about Mm -hmm. what is, Mm -hmm. and not to, wish things were different, because I know she wishes things were different very, very much, because she says, I'll never be the same like I was, and she paints this picture, you know, and she says, I just want to get better and be normal and go back to the way I was, but that's not going to happen, given, I think, um, as I say, I don't know what a doctor says, but it just, and then she says, well, I'll come out when I feel stronger or better or how what could you
2: um,
1: say to this person who as I say doesn't has her sister I think talks to about some Buddhism but I don't know if she's a Buddhist or not but you know she does like to look on the internet and
0: and uh, read things yeah. about it. Well you said that you feel like all you can do is repeat what your teachers say but you can do more than that you can you can explain it in the in the way that's meaningful to you you can try to help her by communicating to her the understanding that has helped you and that's a good way to approach it because you see if you feel like you've got to uh, th- that uh, you've got to somehow present her pieces of uh, accurate precise Buddhism um, you're either going to feel like you're not uh, competent to do that or else you're not really going to touch her with what she needs. She, she's going to hear a bunch of words that kind of don't really you know, not. she's not sure what they say or mean but Know, but if you come from your heart to her heart and communicate what's meaningful that you understand, that's, that's I think, the best way to approach it. And I think from your description that you already know the things to, to begin gently making her aware of, you know, that... Um, that worrying about things only makes you unhappy in the present and doesn't change what will happen. You know that. Right? And longing for what's past, same thing. It makes you miserable now. But you know, there's never any going back. No matter what. You know, it's not just that. In her case, it doesn't look like things are ever going to go back to being the way they were. Nobody's anything has ever gone back to being the way that it was, period. (laughs) So, you know, if you could just help her to understand the ways in which thinking in those terms is denying her comfort in the present, that would be very helpful. If you could just remind her to be present and discover, you know, discover that joy, to discover that happiness that is available in the present, to whatever degree, you know, even if it's just a little bit. Even if, when you go walking with her, you can help to remind her of, of the beauty of the world and the fresh air and this, that, whatever. That will, be, that will be very helpful. Um, and then, if she starts to listen and understand those things, well, then you can take a stab at maybe explaining things in a little more detail, maybe with, with a little more depth to them. But don't worry about Don't slip into the mode of uh, re- reciting dogma at her that you heard from somebody else. Just keep it at the level of well, Thanks. this is how I understand it. You know, and if you want to qualify it and say well, yeah, I might not be getting this exactly right, but this is what I learned and this is what's helped me and this is how I understand it. She's Suffering, pain, and attached to the past. And, you know that that's really that's really sad because what she's missing out on, uh, it's going to be the past, and and then she's going to be sad because she missed the present once it becomes the past. I mean, we all do that, right? We all forget to appreciate the present. That's what you know. Uh, what Pam was talking about. Uh, after the tea ceremony there, that Japanese uh, fascination with the effect of time on things. Because nothing is static, everything is constantly changing. And, uh, you know, impermanence is one of the characteristics of all phenomena. And maybe too often, when we talk about it, we Emphasize that we that we put the emphasis on the way that we think things are are permanent, and that uh, we don't we don't recognize the suffering that that causes. But there's another side to impermanence. When we do realize how impermanent everything is, it makes every single moment precious. This moment, right now, will never ever happen again. You know, if you're sitting here thinking, "This has been a great day. This, this is this is really a nice place and nice people," and you know, I can't wait till I have a chance to do this again. But you never will. Even if it's in the same place with the same people, it's going to be different. Each moment exists only once. And the unfortunate thing about the way we live our lives, especially when our minds slip into a past that no longer exists, and uh, a future that doesn't exist, we lose that present. You, you cannot be in the present and the past at the same time. And so when you're when you're in the past, you're losing the most precious thing that you have, which is the present. This is what this person needs to discover that rather than mourning what she's already lost, stop losing what she has. Because every, every hour and every day that goes by that she spent dissatisfied and not enjoying the life that she has is. That's a day that's that's lost to her forever, and if you can communicate that to her, along with—I mean—that might just upset her. If you got along with the idea that that today now is actually quite wonderful. When you get down to it, you know, the way you feel right now—it's it's good to be alive. It's good to be conscious. There are all sorts of pleasant. Uh, experiences that are a part of this moment that are totally lost if you don't take the time to notice and appreciate them, and that doesn't mean in an unwholesome way of trying to cling, to cling to them, but just appreciate them as they flow through. And that's, like I guess, that's expressed really beautifully in, in that and uh, uh, in, in the idea concept of wabi sabi that leaves as they turn, rather than longing for the way they looked when they were green in the spring or the summer. It's the the magic of the way they are now. And it's the same thing with ourselves, with our own lives. Um, we talked a number of evenings here during this routine about death uh, and the difficulties approaching death. But, death, too, is a part of our wonderful present. And, you know, if you apply that wabi-sabi idea to it, even aging and even death are a wonderful part of the gift that you have that needs to be fully appreciated and enjoyed, not denied uh, not uh, your ability to experience it. Can be drowned out by your fear of it, and by your rejection of it, your resistance of it, and and that's really foolish, considering that no matter how much you flood your mind with fear and how much you resist it, it's not going to change. You know, it's, it's like you can't you can't keep the you can't keep the leaves from turning. They're they're going to turn. So that's death is a part of life, and the changes that we go through, the changes that your neighbor is going through. If she could just come to the place of accepting them so that she could appreciate and enjoy them. Um, I, I know it's hard to understand, but, and, and maybe all of you or some of you have had enough experience of wisdom, but even the unpleasant things, even unhappy things, even the loss, has its beauty. It, it has its own wonder and its beauty and its specialness. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it's, yeah. It, it, we, we don't very often think in those terms, but if we if we can, we. What we open up ourselves to is uh, a, a totally different slice of what it means to be a human being, because we're not, we're not rejecting it and blocking it off and denying it. I've always said it's an interesting thing about uh, country and western music, about particular music, Jonathan. It's, you know, it's all this broken-hearted, hard-luck stuff, right? But people do love it, right? Some do.
3: <laughs>
0: and and why? Yeah, it's not just that. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're thinking, yeah, some people do, but I'm too sophisticated for that. But if you're too sophisticated, you probably still enjoy a really good tragedy, maybe a Shakespearean tragedy, or if you're not into Shakespeare, there's other tragic tales that touch your heart. And you've got to admit that you can expect that you can experience joy and pleasure in that pathos. And of course, when we're listening to a, a broken-hearted love song, it's different than being a broken-hearted lover. And what's the difference? Well, well, the difference is that when you're the broken-hearted lover, you're wallowing in the pain of it. When you're listening to a broken-hearted love song, you're, you're just touched by the the subtlety and the complexity and the beauty of, of life and and human interactions and relationships, and you've been through at least some of that yourself at some time, so you're in this objective place where you can appreciate it, rather than wallow in the misery of it. the same thing with the tragedy, you know. Any sort of of, of heart-touching tragic tale, is that perhaps if it were happening to you, You would have no appreciation for it at all, but you have that objective, non-attached vantage point by which you can experience it as as something of of beauty and, and, and experience a genuine pleasure in your appreciation of it. Well, there is absolutely no reason why we can't do that in our own personal tragedies as well. It's admittedly, it's not as easy as having the idea suggested to you or having the idea occur to you. You have to learn to have that kind of uh, objective appreciation. But once you do, then you know from from this point on, your life, all of our lives, are going to be characterized by a lot of loss we're going to lose health, we're going to lose vitality, we're going to lose mobility, we're going to lose mental clarity, we're going to lose friends, we're going to lose property, you know, you name it. Loss, 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 loss. Well, you know, it can either be terrible, or it can just be part of the wonder of of the way the world works, and we are a part of it. We're part of it in a way that uh, we live the exquisite wonder of it. It's only when we get overly attached to our sense of, of self and possessiveness and being and having and so forth that we have difficulty doing that. So, a good, you know. The, Another way that you can make use of your relationship with your neighbor is, look how much there is to learn from it. You can, at the same time that you are trying to help your neighbor by sharing the benefit of what you've learned, at the same time, you can learn much more by looking at your neighbor and seeing, ah, yes, that's the kind of mistake that I make too. And this is a good reminder. This is this tells me where I can end up going if I, you know, if I I'm not mindful and if I if I didn't know the things that I do know. The other thing about impermanence is impermanence and change. Um, You know, I guess it's kind of the the same thing, but we take so much for granted that, um, you know, like, this is such a beautiful place. And I, I would hate to ever get to the place where I took it for granted, where I walked outside and I didn't look at those mountains, or look at the sky, or hear the birds, or something, and and, uh, truly experience the wonder of what it is, if I became so used to it, that I let it go, you know, there's no guarantee that it'll be there. There's no guarantee when I, at any occasion that I leave here, that I'll ever be back. Or at any moment something could happen. One of the things that, living in a forest, you always worry about is, what if it catches fire? But you know, if I were to forget to appreciate this place, and then, uh, and then a fire came through here, then, you know, there's never any going back. There's only now. The same thing with relationships. If you really understand impermanence, how can you ever part company with somebody you love? in in, in anger and and having created any kind of hurt or suffering. I mean, that's just because of the stupid assumption that they're always going to be there. Or the things that you enjoy, you know. To take them for granted uh, is to make the assumption that, well, uh, they're always going to be there. They're going to be there tomorrow and the next day and so on and so forth, and, and they're not. So the people... Everything in your life is becomes very precious when you really understand impermanence. There is never any going back. There is only the present. The future doesn't exist, and it's always good. When you find you're losing the present because you're worried about the future, you might want to reflect on the fact that almost nothing in your life has ever turned out the way you expected it to, has it? And most of the things that you ever worried about that might happen never did, right? So, you know, you can rationalize that that you need to worry about things, or that you need to spend a lot of time thinking about the future. And it's not to say that you don't you you know
1: there is a necessity
0: for planning, there is a necessity for the exercise of foresight, obviously, but always be on guard for those times when you're wasting the present, being concerned about things that will most likely never happen. And and whatever does happen is always going to turn out differently than you expected. So most of most of the planning and projection you put into it. Is going to have to be all wiped away while you adapt to whatever does happen anyway. So, you're welcome. That's the positive side of impermanence a tremendous positive sight. When you really understand impermanence, it will change the way you live your life, and you will live a better life, a happier life, and you'll be, you'll be, yeah, you'll be a lot better to all the people around you, too. Anyone else have anything on their mind?
4: I'm curious about the difference between um, dry versus wet meditation. Have you heard those terms?
0: Yes, I know those terms. Although, most usually you don't say wet. What do you say? Dry versus (laughs)
4: what?
0: Uh, the, the, the dryness, yeah. Uh, yes, the dry uh, meditation is meditation that doesn't develop samatha. It doesn't develop the kind of concentration that uh, is uh, is accompanied by. Uh, joy and tranquility and equanimity. As a matter of fact, the, the dry insight practice deliberately avoids that when joy starts to come up. They increase the uh, noting activity of the mind or some other activity of the mind to the point that it basically it agitates the mind to the degree that uh, uh, the joy is not present. Now as to where the terms come from. Dry is an accurate translation of uh, uh Pali word sukha. Uh, it sounds the same as the sukha that means pleasure but it means dry. It has an extra K in it. And it's referring to the fact that you can practice insight with the moisturizing lubrication of samatha, or you can practice insight that is dry, that lacks that lubricating samatha. The qualities of samatha that it lacks are specifically joy, tranquility, and equanimity. And so, if you do a dry insight practice, then you'll come to the point where your concentration is strong enough for joy to arise. And in that method, it's regarded as a, a defilement of insight. And so you will increase the intensity of your noting practice so that, and ignore the joy, and it will go away. So then, in that practice, you will proceed to experience the rapid dissolution of phenomenon, um, both sensations but also mental objects, and then this will make you extremely aware of the uh, of, of the characteristics of impermanence and suffering and, and emptiness, and. That will lead to what's called, well, the, the, when you become very aware of the passing away of everything, that's called the knowledge of dissolution. The knowledge of dissolution is followed by the knowledge of fear, where which is where you, you see that everything is impermanent, and you see that uh, uh, that, clinging to anything is uh, a cause of suffering. And so, you know, the, the next knowledge that arises at, at the knowledge of uh, fears and knowledge of misery, because your mind seeks any way out of this, and no matter where it turns, it finds the same thing. Uh, emptiness and impermanence and suffering in the meditation. And that's followed by the knowledge of disgust. You become disgusted with this existence, with this whole life. And then at some point your your disgust, uh, your fear, your misery and disgust exhaust themselves. You actually become drained emotionally. uh, The yogi is typically at this stage physically miserable. Their body aches and they feel like they're sick and and they're emotionally drained and everything else. And so they arrive at the knowledge of recollection and and in this they realize that that, what they have seen through their insight practice is uh, is just so terrible that the only hope is that there really is a liberation, that there really is uh, that there really is an awakening or enlightenment at the end of the path. And so that gives rise to the knowledge of determination. They make the determination that no matter how miserable they feel, that they will go back to practicing. Uh, Diligently, they'll continue the practice until they achieve their breakthrough. And so, with this knowledge of determination, then, as a practice, they will come, they will then, at that point, finally achieve the characteristics of samatha that are tranquility and equanimity. And so, it comes to a stage called the knowledge of equanimity towards formations. And at this point, they enjoy the qualities of samatha which allow them to confront the the reality that they've had this insight into and then they can then they will achieve awakening. There's some there's, the next stages that occur happen instantaneously. I don't know need to go into them, but um, the, the knowledge of equanimity towards formations can last a long time, but it's basically equivalent to samatha. So this is called dry insight because they've gone through the stages of insight without, as they say, the moisturizing lubrication of, of samatha, the joy, tranquility, and equanimity. But it's not, of course, completely without it because it comes later. Uh, what the what it says in the sutras about this is that, you know, uh, the, the what it says in the sutras is that. Uh, best I can remember the way it's worded. Um, Every bhikkhu that I have seen who has achieved the awakening has done so in one of the following ways. Either they have first attained insight, or they first attained samatha and then insight, or they have attained insight and then samatha, or they have attained insight and samatha, yoke together. As a matter of fact, that's the name of the sutra, is Yuga and it means yoke together, it's the Yoke Together Sutra. Okay. So what we've been talking about here would be the second of these three ways, which is where the person achieves insight, followed by samatha, because, it, it, remember it started out, any bhikkhu I've seen that's been awakened is awakened because, and then we jump to the second of these ways, Achieve insight followed by samatha, because the knowledge of equanimity towards formation is samatha. But that's the dry insight practice. It's doing it in that order. That's also what I was talking about last night. You know, you when you asked if it was like a controlled nervous breakdown, doing it that way is like a controlled nervous breakdown. That's very
4: difficult. So, what difficult. would the lineage be? Of, is that the um, the Burmese? Yeah. tradition
0: that is uh-huh. yeah. that became very very popular um, well it became popular in Southeast Asia in the first half of the 19th century um, and uh, uh, then in the in the 60s when a lot of these well-known people uh, Jack cornfield Joseph Goldstein uh, what's that Schindler there in Salzburg, and yeah, these people went to Southeast Asia. And they learned this, you know, and basically it was the only Buddhist meditation they learned, because that was the big thing that was happening in Southeast Asia in the 20th century. Uh, and so they brought it back to North America. And so they started teaching the dry insight method. What's really interesting now, you know, they started the... Uh, uh, started IMS and Spirit Rock and these things. And for years, that's really all that they offered. But gradually over those years, they kept modifying the methods that they had learned, basically making them more humane. Jack Cornfield is, uh, uh, is, is a counselor, a psychological counselor. And he, uh, he was the one that may started making the most modifications. But now, in fact, those same centers no longer teach... Uh, just the dry insight. Even their dry insight uh, I, now, I'd have to say, is is a damp insight. <laughs>
3: uh,
0: it's damp insight, huh? and now they teach, they offer retreats in samatha, and they they encourage people to do a lot of, of uh, samatha practice as well. So that's what the dry meditation is. Okay. The Samatha practice that I teach, um, you can do it either, you know, you, you practice and, and you reach uh, anywhere from the seventh stage on, but really the eighth stage is where you, where you really start to have some some Samatha, you have some joy, some happiness and tranquility and things like that. But if you develop it all the way to the tenth stage, and these are these are really, really strong, so, that would, to do that and then switch to uh, doing a practice that is primarily intended to give rise to insight would be following the first of the ways that I mentioned from the Yogananda Sutra, which is to uh, attain Samatha uh, followed by insight. But the best way to do the practice, although it requires more guidance, is to cultivate Samatha and Vipassana together, yoke together. And the things I was suggesting to you the other night about right view and using your meditation practice to develop right right view. You see, the progress of insight goes um, purification of view, purification by overcoming doubt, purification by knowledge of what is and is not the path, purification by knowledge and vision of the way, and then the actual enlightenment is called purification by knowledge and vision. The stages, the knowledges of dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, uh, recollection, and determination are all part of the, the part of that called uh. uh Purification by knowledge and vision of the way. By purification by, uh, yeah, by by knowledge and vision of the way. Okay, so, and if you practice samatha and vipassana yoke together, then you achieve. You, you come to understand the insights. You have increasingly frequent direct experience of the insights in your meditation as a part of the purification of view and the purification by overcoming doubt. And then, when you get to the eighth stage where you have uh, the the strong joy arising, then when you recognize that just sitting around basking in joy uh, is not the end of the path, is not the purpose, because you recognize. <laughs> yeah, well, what you recognize. And, and, you know, I'm glad you snapped your fingers because <clears throat> it's the truth. You think about it all the time and the effort it takes to get your mind in the right state so that you can enter into these joyful states and how fragile it is. It's great if your life's going smoothly and you have lots of time to meditate and then you can enter into these joyful states and actually you get to the tenth stage. If you meditate for a few hours every day, the rest of your day, you, you still have all that joy. And you could say to yourself, hey, you know, this is as good as it gets. I mean, you know, what else could you be? But if something happens and you can't meditate, it's gone. It's dependent upon causes and conditions. It is great, granted. But it's easily lost. Traumatic things take place in your life. They agitate your mind, and you, you can't get to that place or something happens and you can't meditate regularly, and you fall back and you can't get to that place. Or you develop Alzheimer's disease or have a stroke, and you know, your mind won't do the things that it used to do. So, you see, the, the, all of the wonderful qualities of Samatha serve to help you to achieve the awakening, which is irreversible. But they themselves as satisfying and attractive as they are, are not permanent. They are dependent upon causes and conditions. They're fragile. They're easily lost. So, in doing Samatha practice, every Samatha practitioner also comes to the point of uh, purification by knowledge of what is and is not the path. Because they recognize that as wonderful as Samatha is, it is not the final liberation. Okay. Now the dry vipassana practitioner, what their teacher does is the very first meditation interview, when the practitioner comes in and says, you know, oh well, I just, you know, my meditations are getting to be just so joyful, and uh, you know, and then the teacher tells him, you know, ignore that. How's your noting going? Are you noting everything? Well. No, not really. It's like my mind is just, you know, it goes so well, Well, I haven't really been noting it. Note everything. Note every single thing. Don't interrupt your noting. That's the instruction. That's exactly the instruction that you'll get if you report joy to this teacher. And sure enough, that's how they deal with knowledge of what is and is not the path, is to steer you away from it. But if you are on the path of developing simultaneously, you have to recognize and you go through a period of fascination. Wow, this is really wonderful, you know. But you have to recognize that it's not the path and continue with the cultivation of insight. Now, if you do, then you know you. When you have insight, and when you have samatha both, and you remember you've developed the insight in the purification of view and the purification by overcoming doubt, and so. Uh, you combine that with your samatha. It's called the union of. It's called the the union of, of samatha and vipassana, It's called the union of, of uh, calm abiding and insight. It goes by a lot of different names, but but the idea is really clear what it is. It's the union of the two, and that corresponds to the stage and the earlier progress that I talked about. That's called the knowledge of equanimity towards formations but you have just managed to bypass, for the most part. I mean, it doesn't guarantee that you won't still experience some uh, uh, periods of being very disconcerted and disturbed by, uh, by these insights, because the more deeply you appreciate the truth of suffering, and that is disturbing. And to the degree that you're not uh, sufficiently uh, unattached from the idea of self, you know, you're you're going to be affected by that, and you're going to be caught by it. But anyway, it's you you either bypass that, or you slip through it very easily, and it's just a bit of a disturbing episode. And that's what's meant by uh, the lubricating moisture of samatha, as opposed to the dry or possible. So sanata. they don't
4: call it wet. What and do you? Uh, <laughs> you I guess that's it's the just
0: term. uh wapassana um, with samatha. that's the uh, there may be some term, and I'm just not remembering it, and you know maybe later tonight or tomorrow it'll pop in think oh yeah, I forgot that, yeah, 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 yeah. that's right that's what but right now I can't remember I can't remember any term corresponding to dry Vipassana to describe an other than Samatha Vipassana or Samatha and vipassana together. So.
4: Thank you. So John, do you are you in a space where you are um, that you feel that you have equanimity regardless of causes and conditions?
0: I have oodles and boodles of equanimity. <laughs> Who's to say whether my equanimity has been adequately tested yet?
4: Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's... Right. I'm making no
0: presumption. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. That's a good sign. Thank you so much. That was a
4: really... That's exactly... You're right. (laughs) So the so the path of um, being yoked together um, is of tradition, more of a Tibetan tradition.
0: It was no. It's actually
4: it's a it's a
0: it's a original way as far as as I can. Discerned from reading the sutras that there was that the Buddha taught oh. his disciples, oh. and it was I think the the original predominant path in the, the Theravada tradition, mm-hmm. but somewhere along the line, their meditation thing got got derailed, and by by the late nineteenth century, you know, uh, not late nineteenth century probably more like uh, late 18th and, and 19th. When the Europeans came to Southeast Asia, um, by that time, you know, and the European influence was disruptive, disruptive to uh, the culture and the practices. But already by the time the Europeans arrived, most monks didn't meditate. And those that did ended up in sort of a trance-like dullness. And it was believed that, uh, it was, that in the modern age of the time, 150, 200 years ago, in that modern age, that uh, it was very rare and very difficult for somebody to become enlightened. And the common belief, at least amongst ordinary people, was that there were no more arahats. Um, but, in fact, what there was in Southeast Asia, there was always a division in the Theravadan tradition. There were the the monastic monks, and then there were the, the forest monks, the forest tradition, the ones that said, hey, you know, the Buddha and his bhikkhus didn't live in uh, fancy places giving sermons to lay people and taking vast quantities of money and food and gold and everything else in, they went out in the forest and they meditated. And so there was uh, always the forest meditation tradition. And this dry vipassana came from the forest tradition. Of course, the sanata vipassana also survived in the forest tradition. But it was the dry vipassana that was introduced in the monasteries as the antidote to the terrible thing that was happening there, that, the dullness, very few mm-hmm. people were meditating, and meditating was more of a trance-like withdrawal from mm-hmm. everything. And so the dry vipassana was brought in, and and it was taught uh, as being the total opposite of this wrong, bad thing that people were doing. Now, unfortunately, <coughs> and that makes perfect sense. I mean. If uh, if you can imagine yourself as somebody like uh, Mahasi Sayada, who was one of the main people that introduced this, that you uh, learned this in the forest tradition, and you came to the monasteries, and you saw that the meditation that they were teaching was leading people into a dull trance, and it was being called uh, Samatha, and you had been trained in this other tradition that led to enlightenment, then you would preach strongly against the uh, concentration practices and encourage everybody to take up this new practice, this alternative practice. And that's exactly what happened. And it worked. And people started becoming enlightened again. And so it spread all over Southeast Asia, dry Vipassana. During, uh, uh, during the first half of the 20th century, it spread throughout Southeast Asia like a wildflower. And it displaced pretty much all of the other meditation traditions in, in the Theravada. Which is why, in the 60s, when all these Americans and Europeans arrived over there, that's what they found. And, and this was, quote, Buddhism. You know, it, it was Buddhist meditation, and that's what they brought back. That's
4: enlightening. Thank you. You're yeah.
0: How
4: is that, what
3: you just described about the, you know, the, the path of not dry
0: vipassana, but shamatha vipassana. How does that compare with the Tibetan practices? Well, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very similar, except that Tibetans do a different kind of vipassana. The samatha part of it is exactly the same. And, um, when, and they, they yoke, yoke them together in a different way. So in the Tibetan practice, the uh, monk or the yogi, would learn Samatha and at the same time do a lot of analytical meditation to develop Vipassana. And then when they had achieved Samatha, then they would, take, then they would achieve the union of Samatha and Vipassana by taking the uh, intellectual understandings and the insights that they gained from their analytical meditation and taking them as the object of samatha meditation. Well, I and that's only one of. There's actually, uh, it's an oversimplification. There, e- even in in the Theravada tradition, there are uh, a, at least uh, that I know of, uh, at least half a dozen different Dhyana Pasana methods. Um, samatha is taught in several different ways in Theravada tradition. When you go to the uh, Tibetan tradition, each of the big Tibetan schools has a whole bunch of different uh, ways that they approach Vipassana. So, um, but there's more, more, of the, more of the differences in the Vipassana side of it than in the Samantan side of it. And I think that's because <clears throat> Vipassana is not a meditation method. Vipassana is something you you want to achieve an in insight in understanding. <coughs> and understanding. So there's many different ways you can approach gaining an understanding. Therefore, there's bound to be many different types of vipassana practices, practices intended to produce insight. Samatha, on the other hand, is training the mind in concentration and mindful awareness. And everybody's mind is pretty much the same. And so, it pretty much has the training. Pretty much has to happen in the same way. The difference is that in the description of the training, which is essentially the same Theravada or any of the different Mahayana schools, except the the program that they give the yogi to follow. Um, the uh, Theravada program is pretty simple. Uh, it's based on a small number of steps. Uh, the typical Mahayana program for Samatha is based on the nine stages of Kamala Shila. But without, with very little elaboration, they're like one-line statements, and it's up to the yogi to figure out what on earth it means. Or if they're lucky, their teacher uh, has done enough meditation that maybe they can explain what that line means. So, But the fact is that everybody has to go through the same stage. And that's what I did, is I took, I took the method that I was taught in several different traditions and I put them together and, and allowed them and, 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 and expanded the information content. So what I'm giving you is essentially a souped up version of the, the same Samatha method that appears more or less in most of the Buddhist traditions. And when you get into Zen, and I really haven't spent much time studying Zen, but it's pretty different. But they've got to go through all the same stages. Except their approach is simplest of all. It's go sit down if you fall asleep, I'm going to whack you with a stick. <laughs> 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 so why would, um, why would a teacher
2: recommend
3: one vipassana
4: method over another, say?
3: A...
0: Well, uh, I think the main reason in actual fact in the world reality is because that's the way they learn. That's what their mm-hmm. teacher taught them. But the, the ideal reason would be that, um, because, um, well, okay, really, before we get to the ideal reason, we'll, we'll say a, a, an, an even better uh, pragmatic reason would be that the teacher really understands this method inside out, and, and therefore it's the one that they know how to teach. But if a a person understands more than one Vipassana method, then the way they teach it uh, would ideally be suited to the individual that they're trying to teach. And I think that's that's the skill of the Buddha. And, you know, I find myself trying to do that, but largely always falling back on well, what I know best is what I learn. and so you're a, a, what what every, anybody gets from me is always going to be it's going to have a huge dose of that in it. But I do understand these other methods and how they work, and I have practiced them myself. And I I would love to get to the point where I could intuitively recognize what's the right way for one person to go, and and direct them that way, but. Insight, you know, uh, it's the very nature of insight. It's how how do you make a person have an aha moment? And there's not one way for that. There's an infinite number of ways, and and there's not one size fits all. So some people are really prone to uh, success using the uh, analytical methods of the. certain of the Tibetan tradition. And that's where they sit down and they use just pure logic, and they're given, they memorize logical arguments. And then they just go over and over them in their mind and and try to understand them and and try to find any flaws in them. And then when they've got one logical argument mastered, then they're taught and they memorize the next logical argument, And, and that's how they meditate, that's how they gain insight. That's, you know, that's a totally different way than, than the method of, uh, well, the method I described to you the night. And that, in turn, is even more different than the, the dry vipassana method, which is, it involves every single thing that you experience, you label it. And then, even when your mind starts to function quickly enough that you don't put a verbal label on it anymore, you still note it, you non-verbally recognize it. So you create a situation where your mind is constantly jumping from any sensation, any object that consciousness takes, your mind jumps to conceptualization. And as soon as the conceptualization has occurred, the mind jumps back to the monitoring of direct experience. So. You train yourself that so your mind's jumping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you're making progress when you start to have uh, 2, 4, 6, 8, 12 noticings per second, 16 noticings per second, you know, and the faster your mind goes and it stays sharp. And what does it lead to? Well, it leads to direct insight into permanence. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> of course it does. You rev your mind up so that it's trying to hit every single thing that appears in conscious awareness, and you're going to discover the truth of impermanence. The so there's all kinds of different ways, They're quite quite different, from, dramatically different from each other.
4: Else
0: you do? Uh, well, you would assume that any method that is still around at least worked long enough in the beginning that people keep hoping. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's my realistic assessment of it. There's an awful lot of people doing insight and teaching insight who don't have any insight. And But I think that the methods they're teaching at one time did work. They were taught by people for whom they had worked, and they did work. And so I think they still have the, the potential to work if they're taught by somebody who understands them and who does, who, for whom they've actually worked, for whom they've actually given rise nice insight. It's also the plethora of different methods, and all of the... That's another thing we talked about in this retreat a little bit, all the different versions of the Dharma that you find in these different traditions. It's overly complicated the situation enormously. So I think it makes it much harder to gain insight, because it appears so complicated and it's not presented as, as clearly and obviously and simply as it could be. Because the things that we're trying to have insight into are not difficult. They're not difficult to understand. Uh, The only thing that's difficult about them is they're difficult to believe because uh, we are inherently, innately uh, predisposed to have a different kind of perception. And we have a lifetime of experience of operating with that kind of perception. That's the only thing that makes it difficult is that you have to overcome a lifetime habit of seeing things in uh, a particular way, but I, I hope you'd agree, based on the things that I talked about the other night, they're not complicated. They're not really difficult to understand intellectually, and they're not that difficult to to apply in such a way that you see that. That, My gosh, this really works. It, you know, this is a, uh, this is a more sensible description of the way things are than the way I'm used to looking at it. But but the big obstacle is that you've always been looking at it this other way, and you're very powerfully conditioned to look at it uh, in a different way. You weren't here for the discussion of purification of view and uh, purification by overcoming doubt. Um, But yeah, the insights themselves—they're not like some uh, really enormously complicated, hard to grasp thing. Um, the fact that the, the you know that the uh, self that we tend to believe we are is a product of our mind seems difficult to grasp, but it's not difficult to discover. And here, this is one that you would know, because you know that all these neuroscientists and a lot of philosophers of consciousness and people working in cognitive sciences have discovered this. So just doing science, you can discover that the self is just a fabrication of the mind. There are are scientists who have written detailed descriptions of of how and why the mind makes up this story. So, you know, you don't even have to do Buddhist meditation practice to discover this truth. But believing it's a different thing (laughs) applying it. Getting to that point where, you know, and that's the thing about it, is no matter how well you understand it, it's that, deep shift in the way your mind works, so that that you aren't constantly thinking and acting out of the assumption that you are a separate self. Itself.
3: Yes? Um, I'd like
0: to be a devil's advocate here, if I can. Sure. Yeah, that's good. Okay, cool. I thought
1: you'd say
3: that. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I've had enough experience with the practice that I know um, and understand and have experienced um, the, the ways that I suffer and how I suffer and how to, and, you know, sort of the first couple of noble truths, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the kind of person I am when I'm practicing versus the kind of person I am, so to speak, when I haven't been practicing. Right. I mean, I've had that empirical experience mm-hmm. for quite a while. But my question is, it, it really relates to the um, to the um, no self piece of it. Um, couldn't someone who is, let's say, a Christian? I mean, I'm, I'm not theistic myself. Mm-hmm. but Couldn't? I mean, it could, it could be really any of the any of the the um, no theistic religions. Mm-hmm. But let's just say someone who's Christian. Couldn't? Couldn't they say? to you, well, I have the experience of knowing Jesus, and it's, this is real to me, and I know for sure that this is reality, and, you know, you tell me I can't prove it to you, but you can't really prove to me what you're saying about Buddhist truth. I mean, couldn't someone say that? Oh, basically yeah. basically equate those two and say, well, when it comes down to it, um, there's one sort of central piece of Buddhism, you know, maybe about the whole rebirth, um, understanding rebirth and karma. I mean, couldn't someone say, well, that, that's all fine, but you can't really prove that, in the same way that you might say to me as a Christian, that's fine, but you can't really prove to me that what you're, what you're saying your Christian beliefs are, are in fact real, ultimately real.
0: Okay. Yes. Well, uh, on the one hand, there's some things that cannot be disproved. If a Christian said to me that I believe I have a soul because I was told this, because it says so in the Bible, I believe I have a soul, even if I can't find it, even if there's no proof or evidence from it, of it, even, even if, you know, I still believe, you know, and as a Buddhist, you know, I, I can't, there's no way I can rule out the possibility that somehow there is such a thing uh, uh, as a soul that is completely ineffable, that is completely beyond uh, what, what I, so I can't rule it out, absolutely. But I don't try to. But, what, uh, as a Buddhist, what I could point out to that person is, uh, yes, but what I'm saying is that the self that you think you are, not this hypothetical soul that you believe you have in, but the self, have somehow, this self that you think you are, and that you feel that you are, and that gets offended, and that experiences desire, uh, wants wants satisfaction and gratification. This self that you feel you are that uh, uh, suffers pain and feels hatred for the source of the pain. I could challenge you to investigate and see if you could find that self. And what you'll find is the desire and the hatred, and so on and so forth, but you won't find that self that you believe that you've had. So I can set aside the discussion of this hypothetical, entirely spiritual uh, soul, and focus on this this belief in a self that's actually at the root of the problem. And that would be the approach that I would take there with that. The other part of this, in Buddhism, there are a lot of things that you absolutely do not need. You do not need to believe in rebirth. As a matter of fact, one of the the highest Buddhist teachers in Burma just flat said, it's garbage, that's, 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 what do you call it, Um, superstitious nonsense. The the concept of rebirth, the only function that it serves in Buddhism is that until you achieve a level of understanding that results in a higher morality, the idea of rebirth produces a motivation to behave yourself because there's consequences. And it's not essential. The only thing in Buddhism that... that, uh, you could say, is is in that kind of category that is essential, is the idea of, of nirvana. But that too, you know, if somebody says to you, uh, I'm not going to spend all my time doing these practices until you can convince me that nirvana exists, well, you know, I'd have to convince them on emotional grounds, because you can't on logical or, or conceptual. You know, it's not possible. But, the one thing is that if they do the practices, they can find out for themselves. And that is one of the fetters that falls away on stream entry, is the overcoming of doubt. Which is overcoming the doubt that there is such a thing as enlightenment, and there is such a thing as nirvana. But that's the only way that you can satisfy that one. But other things like rebirth, you don't need to believe it. You can say, you know, you can throw it out the window. Um, It serves a limited purpose. Of course, there's a lot of things that you might be left uh, needing to understand and and to explain. But it is absolutely not essential for the rest of the Dharma. Well,
2: Well, what about the um, the birth the rebirth that takes place inside this cycle of dependent origination. That well, that happens,
0: rebirth, yeah.
2: That happens every day, all the time. Yes, we just that's right. Keep going around this wheel of samsara. That samsaric rebirth.
0: Yes, yes, thank you for mentioning that because that is really that is the valuable teaching of rebirth in Buddhism, an important one, is that every morning when you wake up, you're reborn and what you are is a result of your past karma. And not only that, when we look at dependent origination, we realize every moment we are reborn, and every moment we are creating ourselves, and every moment we are generating the karma and experiencing the fruits of the karma. So in that regard, rebirth is a very important and key doctrine. But the rebirth that happens beyond the physical death and the cremation of the body or the burial of the body is... Thank you very much, Deborah, for that very important, extremely important point. That is—that's the important role that rebirth plays in Buddhism: is dependent origination. And I think that is really—that uh, is its true significance, soteriologically. Because what might or might not happen at the death of the body is not really particularly important except perhaps for emotional reasons and things like that. Which isn't, at the same time, that's not. I am not denying the truth of what the Buddha taught, which is that the karmic propensities are reborn and do manifest in a different form in the future. Um, and I can understand how that happens. I can understand that on the basis of Buddhist doctrine. So, uh, if you understand the rest of Buddhist doctrine, then you might understand that the sense in which rebirth is presented as being a continuation of karmic propensities and uh, the production of of a fruit of mental intentions in the mind stream, uh, You don't have to believe it out of hand. Good, I, I like this. Can you be devil's advocate somewhere? <laughs>
3: well, I was
0: just thinking about you know the you
3: had alluded to this I think yesterday. I was just thinking about you know the, the power of religion in, here in the 21st century. Uh-huh, I don't use the yeah. word evil very often, but, but really. Um, and and also the spread of religion, from what I gathered, a little bit I read about how about, um, there's been so much more uh, and sort of a broader, larger spread of religion again you know, in these last number of decades or whatever. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and practically all the religions firmly believe that they have the absolute truth mm-hmm. and everybody else is, you know, in some delusionary place or something, yeah. you know. And trying to, to you know, proselytize and trying to bring everyone into into their own view, I mean, you talked about this last night in so. or something like that. And so, um, and I'm not sure what's happening with Buddhism. I mean, I, you know, there's been a lot, as you know, written about Western Buddhism through the last number of decades, and mm-hmm. um, you know, various places and people, and you know, growing and changing and, you know, mixing various kinds of ways of understanding and practice. And all. And I don't really know what's happening in the East in terms of Buddhism. I don't know whether I'm sort of curious. Would you describe? in the East has been sort of a growing, changing, you know, religion at this point or not, I don't really know. But, I, you know, I, I, I get, I have this concern about how I see, uh, what I see happening in terms of, you know, religious doctrine and how it's really affecting the, the ways that people and groups and nations and cultures are, you, know, you know, really think.
0: I, I, you know, and it it's yeah.
3: feels very disruptive to me, so...
0: I agree with you. I, I see so much harm that's been done in the world by religion, and so much danger and religion and religious beliefs that conflict with each other. Uh, you know, and Buddhism didn't start out as a religion, either. It was turned into a religion, and it exists in the world uh, as, as a number of different religions. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think that the, the the problems that are created by religion, Buddhism could go a long way towards helping uh, society to overcome. But I think it's far less likely to happen if Buddhism is regarded as a religion. You know. If if Buddhism is a religion, it's one more religion amongst many, and therefore, you know, it's just it's the same old thing of, uh, you know, my religion's better than your religion, or even more than that, because I belong to this religion, um, I put on blinders any time I get close to any other religion, because, you know, it would not be good for me to look inside that other religion. It might. it might uh, contaminate my faith. So if Buddhism is seen as a religion, to the degree that it's seen as a religion, uh, it's going to keep a whole lot of people from even being willing to look at it. I see that right there in this part of the world that we live in here in in Arizona. Uh, You know, people, even people that don't go to church but think of themselves as Christians, you know, they know thing about Buddhism, but they're not about to find out, either, because they may not know anything about it, but it is one of those foreign, heathen religions. asking about
3: religion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, interesting things are happening all over the world. Buddhist, Buddhism has... been culturally and geographically confined and, and all these different Buddhist traditions uh, are quite different from each other because of that. Uh, but of course the world has shrunk enormously. Uh, it's so easy to travel now and uh, people move all around and there's the internet and all kinds of other communication and books are published and translated in a different language. So even the different traditions of Buddhism are in the process of being. Uh, uh, there's an inevitable kind of cross-pollination taking place, but it's been very delayed because uh, most of the uh, parts of the world where Buddhism is well developed have been the most. Uh, what's the right word? They've been they've been the slowest to move into the modern era, and and until. I I suppose even today, in most Buddhist countries, uh, the only Buddhism that a person learns is what they teach in in, uh, that village, town, area. Because most people in those countries still live out their whole life without ever traveling more than, you know, maybe 100 or 200 miles away from where they were born. But it's all changing. Uh, The big place the big changes in Buddhism, I think, are happening in North America. Because, well, for one thing, there's all the Westerners who are looking at all these different traditions, you know, and you go to any city, and they've got their Zen centers, and they've got the Theravadan centers, and they've got their Tibetan Buddhist centers, and they you know, they've got all these different things there, not to mention that they'll have a, probably have a place that teaches Advaita Vedanta, from the non-Buddhist Eastern traditions, as well. And, and Westerners feel no particular... They're shopping, they have no brand allegiance.
2: <laughs>
0: Maybe that limited brand allegiance, that if, if they first became involved with Zen, or they first became involved with, with that in Buddhism, but it's not that strong, and they'll st- they're still very open to exploring and combining and everything. But the other thing is the Asians that move to North America. The Chinese are a good example. Um, but in addition to them, there's the Vietnamese, who have a completely different kind of Buddhism than the Chinese do, and so on and so forth. So they move here, and uh, and they have their own temples. and. Uh, they basically transplant their tradition from their country to here. But even there, they can't help their children in a non-Buddhist society and looking for some kind of, uh, of identity for themselves. You know, They'll have contact with other forms of Buddhism as well, so the cross-pollination is there. Nancy mentioned University of the West. It's a Chinese... Uh, Buddhist University in Rosemead, started by the Silai Temple. But they have they have Buddhists from all different traditions, except for Tibetan. I don't think they have anybody from a Tibetan tradition there, but pretty much all of the other Buddhist traditions. Uh, uh, they have people there, both, both uh, lay people and people in robes, uh, who are doing masters and PhDs in Buddhist studies at Rosemead and have contact with each other and the courses that are taught, you know, they cover the full range of, uh, of Buddhist studies without necessity. And there are there are other universities like that as well. So where is that
3: university? What's that? Where's that looking? In Rosemead,
0: California, this uh, one of the suburbs of Los Angeles. But There is a problem, I see, with Buddhism being religious. On the other side, there are certain advantages to it. Um, I mean, it certainly fills the need that human beings have that religions are intended to fill. And, you know, I have adopted Ancient Buddhist custom of observing Uposatha day because it fits in so well in our culture. And I, I can't believe that, that more Buddhists haven't done that with Buddhist, Buddhism coming to the West. But Uposatha day was observed on the quarters of the moon, or approximately once a week. We're not on a lunar calendar anymore, but once a week still comes out to be once a week. And uh, Western society has always observed a Sabbath, whether it's on Saturday or, or Sunday, and it's pretty much ingrained. And so, you know, Buddhism can fit into the religious infrastructure. Uh, Buddhist teaching and, and uh, you know, uh, the tax structure allows uh, uh, a nonprofit organization to become a uh, Uh, recognized as a church and and therefore it can be supported by its members through donations and they get tax receipts and that's a wonderful thing. So there's a really good side to Buddhism being a kind of religion as well and it does make sense. But What I don't like about it is when when the label religion is put on it those two things I don't like about it is that Buddhism in this country still carries a lot of religious aspects that are really not in- intrinsic to Buddhism. And uh, secondly, it puts Buddhism on the same scale with Seventh-day Adventists and, and Baptists and Catholics and Jews and everything else that, oh yeah, you're another religion just like us, you know, and therefore the only interaction we'll have with you is, uh, is one of uh, Denouncing your beliefs in favor of ours, <laughs> and that's too bad. On the other hand, there are an awful lot of Jewish Buddhists, and there's an awful lot. Yeah, and there's there's other people who have managed to find you know the, a common ground between Buddhism and uh, and various denominations of Christianity. I mean, there are some potential points of conflict, like, you know, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to believe in an immortal soul, and a Buddhist doesn't believe in a self. But understood properly, you can still believe in, as I said before, some... You can have faith in some version of a soul and still benefit from all of the Dharma teachings of no, no self. So. it's a marvelous little thing to be living in this time and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. So you you can't be a Christian and a
1: Buddhist at the same
0: time? Or a Buddhist at the same time? If if your Buddhism, if, if the Buddhism that you adopt uh, doesn't insist that you include those beliefs that are in direct conflict with Christianity you could but if the, the what is inherently intrinsic to Buddhism itself doesn't need to be in conflict um, the Buddha never said there is no God Buddha said God is totally unnecessary you can have one if you want <laughs> That makes you feel good.
3: That's what I love about the music. It's
1: so great. <laughs> it's so, great. <laughs> so it also, like, uh, say, you know, some of the saints, like, uh, you know, well, like Saint Teresa of Avila, or something that they have this connection with the divine or the rapture, or is is that the same? ultimate reality? Because how they describe it, it sure sounds like it. Is yeah. that the same
0: ultimate reality that you see in Buddhism? I completely totally believe that it is. I believe that the the Vedantists who have achieved union with Brahman and the Christian mystics who have achieved uh, divine union with God and the uh, Buddhists who've achieved uh, uh, the, uh, nirvana, or a direct experience of emptiness, or all the other labels you might know, they're all talking about exactly the same thing. The different, there's different ways of, of conceptualizing it, and even more significantly different ways of dressing it up mythologically. Because you, you bring this whole religious structure with with you to to these things, as well as the conceptual structure. So, but I do, yeah, I believe they're exactly the same thing. I think, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, all of the famous Christian mystics uh, achieved Buddhahood. You know, I mean that's that's what they did. That's what they were talking about. And They didn't need any Buddhist doctrine to do it, either. But I think you you can look at the path they followed and see, well, you can see that it's, you know, it's like there's, you can get to the top of the mountain from any side. And no matter which side you go up, there's certain things in common about what's going to happen between the bottom and the top. I can see I think you can see the similarities there um, so there are other ways to become enlightened than what uh, than what we teach in Buddhism but the advantage of Buddhism is it's very systematic it's completely understood it's not hit or miss it's been tried out and proved over and over again so it's a way that will work if you if you if you follow it systematically, it will get you there. But it doesn't mean it's the only way to get there. I've also been studying for years, uh, reading accounts of people. You know, there's people who don't belong to any religion, have never done any practice, who are enlightened. And I've been collecting uh, uh, published accounts of those people, and it's amazing how many there are. And it happens all the time. So, uh, what I've seen a whole lot more often, is people that, who um, have had mystical experiences. They've achieved some degree of insight, or perhaps even achieved the uh, first of the stages of awakening. But I also see that they have absolutely no idea where to go from there. You know, that, uh, because they did not arrive there as a part of a systematic training. So they don't know where to go. But what happens is they do show up in Buddhist meditation classes and Dharma classes because they are searching for, you know. And this this is the story that I hear. Somebody says, you know, I had this incredible experience, you know, 20 years ago. It was the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life. It completely changed me. And but I've never been able to repeat it, and you know, it's completely changed my attitude towards people and the way I live my life. But I feel like there's so there's so much more, and I just you know I had a taste, of it. and and uh, there have been quite a few of those that come along. So there's many ways to I think the discovery of ultimate reality, if there's any validity to it at all, if it's not all just a fantasy and a hallucination, it has to be this way. You know, if reality is reality and people are people, then, uh, you know, uh, all, all of the ultimate realities that different people have ever experienced got to be the same one. <laughs> Which isn't to say that people can delude themselves and it doesn't happen quite often because it does, but but uh, the real thing happens, too. So would you describe Buddhism as
1: a spiritual
0: practice or a training? Is it all of the above? It is all of the above. It is, I, I'd say, above all, it is a spiritual practice and a training and with a specific goal in mind and with specific uh, ways of, of, of achieving that goal. That's primarily what it is. But it also is not a religion, it's it's a number of religions, and these religions are vastly different from each other. And some of them, some of these Buddhist religions, seem to have even lost the original uh, Practice and training part of it. There are Buddhist religions that don't include any of the uh, any of the practice and training that, to me, makes Buddhism Buddhism. The belief that you can chant the name of the Lotus Sutra in Japanese in a group of people. Uh, and if you do this often enough, sincerely enough, you'll be born in a heaven where uh, a, a Buddha will ensure your enlightenment there. So you don't need to worry about it here. And you can go ahead and do all the other stuff you do, make lots of money and own lots of stuff. And, you know. But you chant the name of the Lotus Sutra, you don't even have to read the Lotus Sutra. All you have to do is chant the name of it. Now, that is... That's a religious form of Buddhism that I don't understand. I don't see it as having much to do with Buddhism at all. So the Buddha never said that, he
1: just said that if you like God, you can have And he didn't really say that <laughs> the Buddhism, I mean,
0: what he. He basically refused to address those questions. He didn't say one way or the other. But
4: he didn't call Buddhism a religion? No. And he didn't call it Buddhism.
0: There was no Buddhism. I don't think he right. knew about Buddhism. <laughs> Did That's he? <laughs> That's right. He was <laughs> born <laughs> too soon. Right, where there was no Buddhism. <laughs> Christ knew the, the Christianity. He caused the end of suffering. He said, the only thing I teach
2: is suffering. suffering and
0: the end of suffering. That's right. That's okay. yeah. all. He, he was very, that's that's the most you could ever get him to say in terms of defining what the whole thing was about. Of course, you could elaborate on that, as we've seen. Well, okay, what is suffering? And what is the end of suffering? And then you've got the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Path, and three this, and five that. The other, and you know, so, but, but I think that does sum it up. You know, he left home. Uh, he was, you know, he, he was. Uh, uh, was twenty nine. Yeah, he's twenty nine, <laughs> and then he basically had the good life. Probably, well, there was a downside to it, they don't mention the fact that that. He was expected to take over ruling this minor kingdom that his father was in charge of. And at that time in India, all these little kingdoms were warring with each other, one gobbling the other up as they gradually became large kingdoms. And had he stayed home, he'd have ended up being caught in all of that. I mean, that was a downside. But at least at the point he left, he had everything you think you could want. But he left because he was troubled by. What we describe as the truth of suffering—the recognition that, that life is unsatisfactory, that it seems uh, that it seems uh, pointless and full of, of misery, and the and the satisfactions that are for it are too limited—and so uh, he left in search of a solution to that, and he stuck to that the whole time. So, what are you teaching? And so, oh, I'm teaching suffering and the end of suffering. But he described himself as being awakened, or one who is awake. Uh, because you can't have an end of suffering without waking up. So, when suffering ends, you have wisdom at the same time. And you get compassion too as a part of the package. It just seems that you know they're not separable. End of suffering, wisdom and compassion. But you don't have to be interested in the wisdom or the compassion. You can just go for the end of suffering. Some people go into Buddhism for the wisdom side of it. They just they want to understand. They want to know. What's
3: that? Oh, uh, some,
0: people go, to some people go into Buddhism because they're searching for wisdom. Yeah, they they want answers, they want understanding, they want you know they want the real truth. I don't know what's really going on, and that's why I went into it. Well, I wanted to understand. Uh-huh. But you go into it looking for wisdom, and you get an end of suffering and compassion. It's like And I suppose maybe some people go into it looking for compassion, but uh, they'll they'll get the whole package. You can't really separate them.
2: I started out the way you said that a lot of people come to you with having had an experience that I couldn't explain, long, long time ago, and uh, just it was always there. Actually, when I was eight years old, I used to do walking meditation. I had no idea what it was, but it felt like the right thing to do. So, um, it's, always I was searching. He was trying to find wisdom through all the philosophers, and this and that. And I thought, well, oh, this is it. Oh, no, that's not it. Well, it must be this. No, it's not that. And then I heard, you know, the first time I ever heard of Dharma talk, it was like that resonated. Mm-hmm. And that was, it sounded true. And that started, you know, my whole search and or my whole process. Not search. I I stopped searching. I just
0: well, you focused practicing. your search then, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Started practicing. But you know, one thing that Dalai Lama always says. I mean, I have only sat with him about three times, about three or four times. But he says to Westerners, because most of, mostly the audience is Westerners, he says, you know. Take what you've learned in Buddhism and take it back to your own tradition. Right. So he's he's always sort of like pointing us yeah. back to our own traditions, and I think a lot of us left our traditions for yeah. probably very good reason. Um, you know, it's just part of the, the process. Um, yeah. It's real hard to think of. I, I don't. Although I study sometimes with a Zen Roshi, who's also a Catholic priest, and I've had the experience of being at a, a you know an intense Zen retreat for eight days, and then and then seeing seeing um, seeing him transform into a priest and celebrate mass. It's very disconcerting.
0: <laughs>
2: very disconcerting, you know.
0: Yeah. That's in Tucson, bad. or is that yeah? It's in yeah. Tucson. Right.
3: I've had a similar experience of um, periodically um, um, finding myself in a synagogue or, you know, in, a, in a, you know, some, some The synagogue's nest, uh, winter, I guess it was, for a couple of sessions, and then I just couldn't go back. You know, I, I it's, it, yeah. I mean, it's just um, there were lots of good reasons for leaving it. I mean, I, I, feel a connection that's, that's sort of a traditional, you know, cultural connection, but not a spiritual connection at all. It's just, you know, it's, it's just so not you know, my understanding of myself and. Um, and it's amazing to see that just that incredible difference. Like, oh, no, this is just like, my... yeah, it doesn't
0: work for me. <laughs> well, that is an interesting thing. I, I you know, I, I know what you mean about the Dalai Lama. He's on, on the one hand, it's an expression of tolerance and trying to communicate that. That the goal of of Buddhism, uh, or even of newcomers to Buddhism, shouldn't be to 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 deny the validity of of other religions. But I think I've often thought most of the people that he's saying that too are already, you know. They've already decided that uh, they've come to Buddhism because it appears to offer something that they didn't get, but they were before. But it is good that he goes on the public record as saying that, and and there's not this appearance that, you know, Buddhism is out to take over the world. The other thing is it would be really wonderful if the Buddhist ideas could be incorporated into these other religions and begin to modify them and make a change. I don't know that it's happened with anything except, to a very small degree, it has happened with Catholicism. Thomas Merton really began that. And then there's uh, Father Keating and uh, I can't remember the name of the other one with the Centering Prayer Movement.
1: What's that? Father Lawrence.
0: Um, this oh well that's somebody that I don't know about. I was trying to think of somebody Father Keating and the other one I'm trying to think of is what's is that? It R-O-H-R? The, not not the one that I'm thinking of. No, I don't know that person. But um, they're more in the in the uh, trend of uh, uh Thomas Merton who brought who introduced meditation techniques into the Catholic Church, and then looked back and said, hey, we used to do this, and so they made them into Christian meditation techniques, called them Centering Prayer instead of Meditation. Um, But Well, I don't know where any of that stuff is is going to go, but uh, you become Buddhas and people will know this and that will have an impact.
2: Could you say something about your
0: experience? Because you had kind of a unique experience as a seminarian, didn't you? How- well, yeah, I I I wasn't raised Catholic, but uh, I had experiences when I was a I te- I had a profound experience when I was a teenager that made me think of everything in a very different way. And then I was looking for spiritual answers, and living in the uh, southern United States, I, I didn't know there was any other religion in the world, other than Christianity. Well, I knew there were Jews, but, you know, but I didn't see a lot of difference there. Uh, <laughs> I certainly didn't know anything about Buddhism or any of these other religions. And so my response to that was to uh, become a Catholic as a teenager, and I ended up in a Catholic university and decided that. And you know, I went whole hog into it. You know, if you do this thing, you do it totally. So, after a period of time, I decided I was going to become a priest, and seminarian, and uh, that that was that was a very disillusioning experience because they taught church history and theology, and the more I learned, the more. I found myself looking around, I can't believe these people really, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This is not for real. (laughs) And if it is, you know, they even talk about it and teach it in the classroom. (laughs) I I keep it a secret. You don't
4: believe in limbo?
0: What's that? You
4: don't believe in limbo?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway, so. I became very disillusioned uh, with, with Catholicism and with Christianity. And, well, it was really obvious that they didn't have anything at all to offer that was in line with what the, the answers that I was looking for and the uh, experiences that I had had, which. As a matter of fact, they were the opposite. Uh, So I I explored uh, several different routes. Of course, that was back in the 60s. I explored the the whole psychedelic thing. And I got interested in uh, Indian mysticism and Hindu and Vedanta. Of course, there were very, very few resources. There were no teachers. Trying to teach myself from books that I'd gotten from the Advaita Vedanta Society and uh, uh, or the Vivekananda Vedanta Society in Chicago, mail order. Trying to teach myself to meditate, studying uh, Patanjali, uh, Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras, and, uh, things like that. And then later on, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came along. And I finally found out uh, uh, how to actually do meditation, and was going to become a meditation teacher there. But then, pretty much your experience, the first time I heard a Dharma talk, it's like, wow, okay, this is this is what I've been looking for. And, and one of the parts of that first talk that was very important, it was just the right thing for me to hear, was that I didn't have to accept anything at all on faith. It was, come and see for yourself. Try it and see for yourself. And that, that struck me at such a deep emotional level, I had to learn more about it Just just because I thought it was so wonderful that there was any Any teacher of any belief system anywhere who would be that open, you know, there's an obligation, even if it turned out to be total bunkum to at least look into it because they were so open to say, come and see for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't looked back since. talked up all of our meditation time. Almost bedtime. In this last few minutes, and there is just literally a few minutes. Uh, any anyone else have anything to say? We we do have a couple more minutes here. Anything else on your mind?
2: Are you familiar with Everett Yes I am. Oh. I'm really familiar with Eckhart Tolle, and the thing that
3: doesn't work for me about Eckhart Tolle, I mean, he may be enlightened, he may know what it's like from that side, but he can't tell you how to get there. Yeah. I mean, he got there from suicidal depression, and that's not something that's
4: duplicatable. I mean, right. He didn't have a method or a, yeah. a way to right. get there. Right, he out. was one of those that you're talking about, right?
0: Yes, that's yeah. right. So he's he teaching you know, what it's like,
4: to finally, uh, but... They just wake not, up and they're enlightened. Yeah. Byron Katie, have you
0: heard yeah.
3: of her? Byron Katie, yeah. You yeah. well, yeah. can duplicate that. It's not yeah. systematic. Yeah,
0: I, I agree with you completely, Debbie. That's the, exactly the impression I had. I read uh, uh, the, the Power of Now, um I haven't really read his his second book, but I've listened to a lot of his recorded talks, and I kept having the same thought that this guy he really knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't have he doesn't have a clear cut way to help somebody else to get there. And he's absolutely right. If you can be totally one hundred percent completely present, then you you will you'll have exactly the experience that we're. Uh, that we're working on. I mean, that's what you do when your meditation is successful. When you have, when, when you have samatha, and when you, when you have power of mindfulness, you are 100% totally, completely present, and you can be so present that your mind can penetrate the illusion that you're in, and see. So, he's not talking about anything different than what we're talking about. But at least we have a way to get there. I than say, you know, try to get completely present. Well, you know what it's like to try to meditate. You know, and so to tell people to be completely present—it's uh, a wonderful idea, but it's just not going to help very many people.
4: But his his talk about pain body and stuff is fantastic. Oh yeah, his I mean, that's like
0: his his description of the pain body and the way it works—I mean, that too is not anything different than we're talking about. But boy, that's probably one of the clearest. And, and, and best ways of expressing it that I've ever heard yeah. articulated.
4: Is that ego? Is that what you would consider ego, pain body?
0: um Not really, but it is definitely a manifestation grasping. of ego. Did you say it's grasping. Well, it's
4: grasping. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's. it's, it's uh,
2: <laughs>
0: it's craving, and it's, it's dukkha, and you know, it's it's ignorance, and uh, um, I think they... Yeah, it's just a really good description of what happens to people and um, what, they, what they do to each other because of it. <laughs> it's very useful. I would say the things like that that Eckhart Tolle teaches are very useful. I would say that uh, there's quite a few things that he teaches that will be useful to people. But I think what he lacks is a clear path of how you get from where you are to where he is. Because I don't think he knows quite how he got there himself. But maybe he'll figure it out. That would be wonderful. I really like Eckhart Tolle.
2: It's just nice to know that there are all these beings who are sort of enlightened, in lieu of the question I asked a couple nights ago, that are are present here now for whatever reason.